Hi, this is Andy Yen from Proton, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Kerry Parker, and we have episode 269 for April 25th, 2022. And today, as I'm sure you have figured out, we are going to be talking with the CEO of Proton, best known for probably Proton Mail, Andy Yen. And he has been on the show before. It turns out it's been quite some time. I had to go back and look. It was like, I don't know, late 2017 since I actually had him on as a guest. Uh, I've had him on twice before. Uh, now, he did uh, contribute a nice snippet for my 200th podcast episode, uh, but really haven't had him on as a guest for quite some time. And I'm really glad to have him back. He's a, a really great guy. You know, I don't do infomercials, but I really like Proton. Uh, they've done some great stuff. I've been a Proton Mail user for many, many years. And I really think that they have struck the right balance. They've got a really nice service that is very easy to use, very intuitive. And they keep adding more and more features all the time. Uh, it's really great. So anyway, uh, again, sorry to make this sound like an infomercial, but I really like what they're doing. And we're going to talk today, of course, about privacy and the importance in the modern world, especially given, again, you know, I hate to you know keep bringing this up, but the Ukraine war with Russia should be making us all think very carefully about how important things like privacy and security are in our daily lives. And in situations like that, Privacy becomes real. I mean, like life or death real. And as we'll talk about also with Andy, it, it, it's important using services like a VPN, and of course Proton makes one of those too, to be able to get access to information when your repressive government is trying to prevent you from doing that. So anyway, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some real life scenarios. There was a particular case that we're going to talk about today that I specifically wanted Andy to address because it hit the news not that long ago. Uh, it was a case where Proton was legally required to give up information about one of their users. And this kind of caused a kerfuffle on the internet. And I, I wanted to get into that and I wanted to give him a chance to talk to him about it. And I think it's important to discuss it as a true real life case. You know, it's one thing to talk about things kind of in the abstract or from an ivory tower perspective, but to actually talk about a specific case where this became a real issue. And uh, I wanted to have him kind of explain how all this works. And, and he makes the point, rightly so, that every company, no matter where you are, are subject to rules. And unless you happen to be somehow on a country of your own or stationed on a boat at international waters, you've got to comply with local laws. And they are in Switzerland, which by the way, has some of the best privacy laws on the planet, but even they, in certain circumstances for law enforcement reasons, when duly served with the proper paperwork are compelled to give up certain amounts of information. And what we're going to find is they really didn't have much to give, uh, which is what you want. They have engineered themselves out of the problem by having true encryption that is controlled by you, the user, so there's really nothing that they can give up. But we'll get into uh, all the details of this with Andy. Now, one more fun little twist to all this, and you'll have to stay tuned after the interview for the details, is I want you guys to give ProTimeL a try. And again, this, this is not an infomercial, but I would like you guys to give it a shot too. They've got a perfectly good free tier to, to uh, start with that you can check out. But I've also got 
some free codes to give away that will give you a free upgrade to their Plus account. These codes were something I was actually working to try to get into the last promotion, and for various reasons, including some fault of my own, they didn't make it into that promotion, but that means that I have them left over now to use here, and I thought this would be a great time to do that. And uh, anyway, I'm going to be giving those away, and the details of that will be after the interview. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get to the interview with Dr. Andy Yen of Proton. Andy is the founder and CEO of Proton. He was a scientist at CERN, has a PhD in physics from Harvard University, and he has long worked to advance privacy and freedom online. Welcome back to the show, Andy. Hi, thanks for having me. Can't believe it's been over four years since you were last on the podcast. I think at that point, uh, you just released maybe Proton VPN back about that time. And I think changed your name from Proton Mail to Proton. It's now just Proton. Uh, maybe if you would, you know, give us a quick overview of Proton and maybe catch us up on what's changed with you guys since we last spoke. Yeah, you know, I don't actually think it's been four years, but uh, time goes by pretty quickly. So it's entirely uh, possible. So you may be right. Yeah, but, you know, I think um, things are changing a lot. Things are constantly moving, right? You know, we're in a, uh, in a space that is rapidly evolving. Uh, the demand for privacy, security uh, online is, you know, in constant flux. Uh, what we have seen quite consistently in the past couple of years is, you know, uh, more and more need for, for the products that we build both the mail product and also the VPN product. Uh, the VPN product in particular is something that, you know, has uh, taken off more than we uh, anticipated. And it's, it's an exciting time to be in the space. You know, quite a lot has happened as, as a team, as a company. Uh, we are evolving. Uh, we're trying to grow. We're trying to develop faster. Uh, and really to stay true to the mission and deliver more products uh, to more users around the world. All right. So as we both know, there's no such thing as perfect security or privacy. And also everyone's situation is different. You know, we not only have different threat models, but, you know, we all have a different tolerance levels for, you know, the inevitable inconveniences that come with increasing your security and privacy. So how, how do you recommend that people figure out, you know, what their personal threat model is and, and how do you advise people to find that right balance between security and convenience? Well, I think that's an interesting question. I think actually most people probably don't have the level of education and knowledge, really, to completely understand, in fact, their personal threat models, right? And that's actually the biggest uh, problem because yeah. you can't know what you don't know and you can't right. defend against what you don't know, right? So really a big challenge you know, for all companies in the privacy and security space is education. Right? I think, you know, first we need to help people understand what they should think about and if I go around and ask people, right, most of them don't even understand what is a concept of threat model. Uh, right. So education is, is, is the first thing, right? You, know, you can't really protect yourselves against threats that you don't even know about. And there's no you know, substitute for taking the time to learn and understand what those threats are in the first place. You know, when you think of threat model, you, you, you think, you know, maybe I, I'm a journalist or a dissident or something, but most of everyone has a threat model. I mean, you could be, you know, mom and pop have a threat model. If you're an employee, that's that's one threat model versus the employer, which is a different threat model. You might be a famous person or a dissident, but I mean, everyone has a, a different thing. So I guess what I'm looking for is how would you, you know, if you're talking to a neighbor at a cocktail party or uh, something like that, and how would you explain to them how they need to think about and what things they need to consider when they're determining how secure or private they need to be? I believe for a kind of general audience, if you go into the technology, uh, at that point, you kind of lost them, right? You know, I know your audience and your listeners are a bit more tech savvy, but for the you know, average uh, consumer, you can't really go into that level of detail. Right? Mm -hmm. you, know, you can't explain to them that, you know, hey, 
you need this end-to-end encryption because they say, put this end-to-end encryption and they don't even know what it is, right? And then they might see, you know, a business that advertises end-to-end encryption, but isn't actually end-to-end encrypted, right? You know, Zoom was a famous example of that, right? It's not really knowing the terminology. It's not even really knowing that the, the, the technology as well because it's really impossible for them, you know, for the average person to understand that. So what I suggest is really to make sure that they focus on you know, what a business is about, right? Uh, so take, for example, let's say Google uh, or even Facebook, right? What you know and what is very clear to most people without even a tech understanding is that Google and Facebook's business model is not really aligned to your interest as a consumer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you use a Google product, you're not Google's actual user or customer. In right. fact, you're the product that they're selling to their real customers, which is the advertisers. And what this really tells you is it doesn't really matter what type of technology Google is claiming. It doesn't really matter what type of you know, privacy policy Google you know, um, is claiming that it has, right? It doesn't really matter how they try to obfuscate the issue. At the end of the day, they probably are not really going to have you know, your best interests at heart. And if you really care about you know, your data security and having control over your data in your digital life, then Google and Facebook, just due to the nature of the business value uh, of the business model and the values of the business, is not going to be that provider. And then you probably know you've got to go somewhere else. And where else do you go? Well, you know, you should look for the company that has a compatible business model because at the end of the day, all these companies are businesses, right? And you know, mm-hmm. how they make money. Uh, really dictates uh, how they're going to protect your information. Because there's such a multidimensional spectrum when you come to privacy and, and, and security levels for people, it's obvious that no one product is right for all people. So how do you how do you approach this problem when you design Proton's various offerings? Like who is who is your target market if that it, you know if there is just one? And is there a particular maybe an audience or threat model that you consciously don't address? Well. I think for Proton to succeed, we have to get to the world where everybody and anybody can use a Proton product, right? Mm-hmm. And this is because we believe fundamentally privacy and security are fundamental human rights. Mm-hmm. And if it's fundamental human rights, then it must be available to everybody, you know, no matter whether they can pay or not, doesn't matter where they live, doesn't matter the level of technical sophistication, right? So, you know, for that reason, uh, we really design you know, our products to be you know, accessible to a mainstream audience, but at the same time, not compromising you know, on the core uh, technology, right? on, on the core promises of security and privacy. There is, as you say, of course, a spectrum, right? You know, I could build you probably the most secure service in the world, but it would probably be so hard to use that no one right. would be ever able to use it, right? right. Uh, which means that it would add no value to, to society. So security and privacy fundamentally, you know, is about making compromises, right? And every company is going to have to make a compromise at some level. There's no way to avoid it. So the best that you can do in this situation is to make sure that you clearly document your compromises, right? And, you know, um, Proton uh, has a very clearly outlined threat model for each of our products that makes it clear what we do and do not protect against, right? But in terms of the baseline end-to-end encryption, you know, uh, that is mathematics, right? So, you know, there's no compromise there. But of course, there will be compromises you know, both in terms of the user interface and other elements, right? Uh, you know, um, an example of you know, a compromise that we have to make is because in email, we store all data in a perfect format. That obviously uh, creates a problem for searching because mm. 
you know, when you want to do a search on encrypted data uh, and your server doesn't access that data, that search has to be done on the client side, right? So we do support a search now, but, you know, it took us a lot longer to build that search capability. Uh, it's available on web. You can actually search encrypted data on the web client, but that was not something that we could support out of the box. What I would also say is as time goes on, technology gets better, right? You know, the mobile devices that we use today are way more advanced than they were even mm. three, four years ago because oh, yeah. of Moore's law, right? Yeah. Uh, and that means that many of the things that in the past were not possible to do in a privacy protection way, today actually are possible just mm. because mobile devices and browsers have gotten so much better. So, you know, there are compromises, but slowly but surely we are closing that gap. And the you know, end goal should be in, you know, let's say three, four years from now, if somebody were to ask me, okay, you know, I like Proton Mail, I want to get more privacy, more security, but what do I have to give up in exchange for that? Well, you know, I do want to get to the place where the answer to that is nothing. You give right. nothing up and you also get, you know, the privacy and security. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So true. VPNs are commonly touted as a privacy panacea. I mean, private's right in the name, right? So, uh, but the reality is that there's a lot of nuance uh, when you're choosing and using a VPN. So, what sorts of problems can VPNs solve for people? And maybe what are the most common misconceptions about VPNs? Yeah, this is an area where there's a lot of misinformation. Mm -hmm. I think um, a lot of the VPN providers out there, um, I'm not going to name names, probably have you know, less than ethical business practices where they're trying to sell VPN to basically everybody, mm -hmm. right? even for use cases uh, where it's not correct. I think there was even you know, a case of one famous uh, VPN, you know, I'll say because everybody knows it. You know. <laughs> I think that NordVPN got in trouble in the UK for you know, having running some advertisements that were, that were in the end you know, false or misleading, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I think you know, obviously we need to be uh, very careful because the last thing you want to do is you know, sell to somebody a product um, that doesn't protect them against what they actually need protection for, right? Uh, and so, so communication is very important. Some people think that, you know, if you use a VPN, you're not going to get a virus. It's going to, you know, protect you from phishing, you know, all right. these different things, right? But it's, it's not true, right? You know, a VPN does nothing against phishing, right? So this is what I've seen, right? Uh, you know, a VPN maybe does protect you slightly against, you know, catching, getting a virus in your computer, but that's very marginal, right? right. Uh, so, you know, I, I think those are just kind of two, you know, um, very common examples, right? And, you know, obviously a VPN doesn't prevent you from getting hacked, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, what does it mean when, when you say get hacked? Well, getting hacked can mean a dozen different things, right? But, you know, if you make a blanket statement that VPN protects you from hackers, well, that doesn't mean anything, right? But yeah, that statement needs to be made. Uh, so, right. yeah, it, it's, it, it's an area where I think, you know, readers do need to, and, and listeners need to um, educate themselves properly. Yeah, for, yeah, for sure. All right. So you know, in my social media circles, I see a lot of hot debates about security and privacy products. You know, the most heated arguments always, always seem to center around anonymity and metadata, particularly when it comes to law enforcement and governmental surveillance. Diehard privacy enthusiasts each have their own, you know, litmus test. Like, you know, does this service reside in a five eyes country or can I pay for this product using cryptocurrency or does this company log my IP address or is this software 100% open source? Uh, first of all, are, are these the right questions to ask? <laughs> and second, what do you feel is the proper balance between the human right to privacy, which we've talk, talked about, and, you know, basic societal needs for law enforcement? Well, I think all those questions you mentioned 
are important and relevant questions, right? And depending on your threat model, could even be you know the most pertinent questions uh, mm-hmm. for you to ask. So I really think that people should ask questions because you know if you ask questions, actually nothing bad comes out of that, right? <laughs> the worst case is you just come out of that losing a bit of time, but becoming more knowledgeable, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, um, I definitely encourage questions uh, to be asked. And I, I also think that, you know, companies should be prepared to answer those questions and be transparent wherever possible, right? Uh, so, you know, um, nothing against questions. I think those are, you know, um, all good questions. In terms of balance between you know, privacy and the needs of law enforcement, this is probably an endless topic that has been there since the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. It will probably still be there long after we're gone, right? There's no black and white answer here because it's not a black and white issue. It's actually, a, you know, it's a pretty great issue with quite a bit of nuances. Oh, yeah. And we could speak about this probably uh, for hours or weeks, right? And, you know, there have been people debating this in both the U.S. and also in the EU that have been debating this for years now, and they still don't have a solution because yeah. there is no, you know, one correct solution. What I can really, so, so I, I, I can't tell, you know, so I can tell you the summer bullet, right? Because it, the exact answer also depends on you know, your own set of personal values, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but... I can tell you the way that I think about the problem and the way that I think, uh, you know, um, lawmakers and society uh, should think about this problem, right? We know it's not an absolute, it's not black and white. Uh, there has to be, you know, um, a middle ground that we need to achieve. And in establishing that middle ground, uh, it's really important to look at overall benefit to society that technology uh, brings. So I'll give you an example of that. An example would be airplanes. We've learned, unfortunately, uh, during 9-11, that terrorists, terrorists can use airplanes mm. and they can use airplanes to great effect, right? Yeah. But does that mean we ban airplanes? Uh, actually, right. no, you know, we don't ban airplanes because without airplanes, you know, a lot of society, a lot of benefits to society that airplanes bring uh, you know, doesn't exist, right? So that's kind of what I mean by balance, right? I mean, you can't ban everything terrorists use because then you know, there'd be nothing left in society, right? Right. And this is kind of, so, so the way to look at this, you know, to decide what you ban and what you don't ban is to look at the overall social benefits of, you know, something, right? And, you know, there's many technologies where if there's a strong social benefit, then you need to accept some of the negative externalities because the benefits, you know, outweigh the disadvantages. So uh, as a CEO of a company that is all about privacy, and I'd like to get your perspective like specifically, like for instance, Apple has gone to great lengths to, you know, tout themselves as a privacy oriented company. And, you know, to their credit, they have tried from a, you know, from an engineering standpoint, from a technical standpoint to actually kind of engineer themselves out of the equation, like try to get themselves to the point where they can't provide data because they don't collect it or it is end-end encrypted so they they literally have zero access to it and you know kind of remove themselves from the equation through it from an engineering standpoint by minimizing data collection and minimizing what they can actually get to as a ceo of a, of a company like this what do you share that view like how do you approach the idea of you know privacy from an engineering standpoint well i'm not sure that i would say that apple is kind of the golden standard when it comes to privacy. Right? Sure. Because, because we really have to kind of you know understand what does Apple mean by privacy when we say, you know, um, we stand for privacy. And if we were to look very closely at it, when Apple says, you know, we protect the privacy and we value privacy, what Apple is really saying is we want to make sure your data is private from everybody 
except for us, mm-hmm. right? And that last bit is quite important because mm-hmm. when we talk about what privacy actually means, there is no ifs or buts or exceptions, right? You know, what privacy means is your data is private, period, right? The difference, I think, between Apple and big tech's definition of privacy and the programs definition of privacy is that thing, right? So, you know, we believe in privacy, period, you know, private also from us at all levels. And the way that you build your product, the way that you build your technology is completely different, uh, you know, when you take that other approach, right? Apple actually has a huge amount of data on their users and they leverage that data quite effectively in, you know, in fact, doing advertising. It's more subtle, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, Apple for sure is involved in advertising. Yep. Whereas, you know, at Proton, we built our technology in such a way that even if we wanted to advertise, uh, we couldn't. So we have no advertising business because even if we wanted to do it, uh, the data simply doesn't exist, right? And this is kind of the privacy by default or privacy by design uh, you know, um, way mm-hmm. of engineering that is uh, quite different and in many ways also quite a bit more difficult. Yeah, for sure. Oh, all right. So I, w- I want to bring up this one recent case where Proton was served with a request by international law enforcement for in, you know evidence in an investigation. They're looking for an IP, uh, IP address logs for a French climate activist. And I know that Proton has spent a lot of time addressing this in the tech press and the social media. I've seen that. But I'm guessing most of my audience probably knows little or nothing about this incident. But I think it would be kind of instructive to you know break down a specific real world case of privacy versus legal compliance. So could you, could you tell us like what happened, you know, what they asked for, what you had, what your legal requirements were, and then maybe, you know, what did Proton learn from all this and how might it affect how you do things going forward? Sure. Yeah. I think the, you know, the crux of the issue here uh, is that these people, they might have been, you know, climate activists, but they also probably weren't climate activists. And what I mean by that is they were, you know, engaged in, breaking and entering private property and causing you know, large amounts of property damage. Mm. And that, unfortunately, in most countries, including Switzerland, is a felony, right? Sure. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a criminal act. And it doesn't really matter, uh, you know, what company you're talking about, right? Unless your company is based on a boat or an island, you know, uh, floating offshore in international right. waters in unclaimed territory, you are going to be under the jurisdiction of uh, you know some country, right? Yeah. And Proton is under Swiss jurisdiction, right? And you know there is no company in the world where using the services of that company means that you are offered immunity from criminal prosecution. That simply mm. doesn't exist, mm-hmm. right? Right. So you know in this case, obviously Proton doesn't give you immunity from criminal prosecution in Switzerland. If you commit a felony, the police can in fact uh, go after you. And in this case, uh, you know, they requested an IP address from, from the specific user. And the way the internet works, it's TCP over TCP IP connections, right? Every internet service you connect to is going to be able to, you know, see an IP address because that is the way the internet is designed. That's the way the technology works, right? And this is kind of the endless debate between anonymity and privacy. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, what Proton uh, Mail provides is privacy. It doesn't provide anonymity because mm. it can't provide anonymity because it is not possible for IP addresses to not exist on the internet, right? Mm-hmm. And this, I think, goes back to you know um, offset, right? You know, if these people uh, had taken you know better measures, if they had used let's say a VPN or a Tor to hide their IP address, then you know 
there would be no IP address for law enforcement uh, to collect, right? Or actually, they would get an IP address, but it wouldn't be their IP address. Right. I think what the case demonstrated was also quite interesting because everybody focuses on the IP address, right? But that's in many ways actually missing the point because mm. the police were not after the IP addresses of these people, right? Uh, you know, these, these folks had been previously arrested. They were squatting the property that they had you know, illegally broken into and entered. So the nature of squatting is that the police obviously knows uh, where you're located, right? Because mm. you are illegally squatting on a property. So what the law enforcement was looking for in this case wasn't actually you know, to find or identify them. They knew where they were, right? The complaint had been called in. What the law enforcement was trying to get in this case was actually you know, access to the emails that they were exchanging to build a case against them. Mm. And in that regard, actually their usage of proton mail, instead of getting them in trouble, actually probably saved them <laughs> because our zero access encryption does work. And this was proven you know, in a legal case where you know, um, even under a criminal uh, you know, summons uh, in a criminal case in Switzerland, you are not able to hand over any email content. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that proves actually that it works. And the fact that we couldn't hand over the email content probably prevented a more serious case being built against these individuals. So, you know, I know a lot of focus on the IP uh, case, but I think, you know, the kind of the moral here is that actually it does work, you know, as it's supposed to, and uh, it works quite well. I'm not sure why this particular case got so much attention, but I mean, in reading some of your responses to this, like one of the things I, I saw that I thought was fascinating was you said you actually fought over 700 cases in 2020 alone for people. So it's not like it's, it's not like you're not fighting for your users. And maybe it's one of those situations like it's the, all, all the things you don't hear about, which may, are maybe more important. But mm-hmm. the other thing I thought was yeah. interesting is you said there were no less than three different authorities in two different countries that required that request. There, there's, it's complicated, all this law stuff. Yes, yes. It's, it's not like, you know, you come knocking and you can easily get the data, right? Uh, you know, um, it, it has to be a criminal case. Uh, it has to be meet the criminal standard in Switzerland. We can argue whether the checks and balances are strong enough, but there are checks and balances. Uh, and I think the law is a law, right? Uh, there's, there's no company that, uh, you know, as I said, unless you're based in, in a boat in the ocean, uh, you'll be under a law of a country. And Switzerland is, uh, you know, no country is perfect, right? I'm not going to say that Switzerland privacy laws are perfect either, but I think compared to many other countries, uh, you know, it does do, you know, as of right now, a pretty good job of defending you know, privacy rights. But at the same time, defending privacy rights in Switzerland uh, doesn't mean immunity for, for criminals. And, and, and this is, I think, yeah, this is maybe a detail that people didn't realize, right? And in fact, you know, you mentioned our transparency report where we mentioned that we fought mm-hmm. some of the cases. And so I, I was kind of surprised that this thing was so surprising to people because right. that the transparency report has been published since 2015, right? So, you know, you could see actually the history uh, and, and on all the cases um, have been documented there for years. You know, we fight wherever we can. And, and one of the things that uh, maybe you saw uh, was that actually last year, in around October, we actually won a court case, right? Uh, which, oh, yes, uh, increased, right. Yes, which increased the privacy of email providers in Switzerland. So we definitely are fighting. And we even take the government to court quite often on these cases. And, you know, um, we also win from time to time as well. So it's, it's, uh, it's definitely not a case where, you know, we're not fighting for our users. Yeah, absolutely. And I and yeah, so thanks for explaining that. I think that was important to to talk about that. There's a lot there are a lot of nuances to this and it's it's not black and white. And I think it's important to understand and certainly get it straight from you guys, you know, 
how these things work and what they you know, what the law really means and how it op- operates and how technologically you have, you know, made a point of, you know, engineering yourself out of this because you can't get to that stuff. It, that's, uh, I think that's important to call out. One more question about this, and I'll kind of take it from a slightly different angle. Many democratic governments have argued that modern privacy technologies like yours are preventing law enforcement and intelligence agencies from protecting their citizens. You know, they say they, you know, they, whether they want back doors or privileged access, basically saying that we're going dark, you know, and that they can't do their jobs if people are allowed to have true, you know, things like true end-to-end encryption. If you had the chance to bend these guys' ears, if you could, you know, sit down in maybe a, a, a private scenario where you could advise lawmakers and appointed people at these agencies, how, how would you recommend that they approach this? How are they getting it wrong? What are they, how are they not thinking about this stuff properly? Well, I think they're missing a lot of the nuance here, right? And what I would tell them is, look, there's no doubt that a society without privacy is going to be more, you know, quote unquote, secure, right? But this society does exist, right? It's called uh, China, North Korea, mm-hmm. and I guess Russia today, right? Yep. You know, and if you were living there, would you actually feel more secure, right? And the answer would probably be you know, no, right? You would feel that your government is completely surveying you, and, you know, and then you, you take a wrong step, you end up in jail. You know, it's, it's a different type of insecurity that comes from a total surveillance uh, society. So this is why we have to understand what we mean when we say security, right? You know, I think security has many aspects and terrorists killing your children is one aspect. And that's very flashy and very good for winning political campaigns. But we also need to think about, you know, security from the standpoint of, you know, am I able to have freedom of expression? Am I able to, you know, um, have freedom of speech? Uh, because these are actually the tenants that make our democracy possible, right? And if we don't protect those, then in fact, we have, you know, a lot more at stake than, you know, just the safety of our children, Right. So, you know, this is why you have to consider the whole picture as well. And it's very easy to take a very simplistic view on this. But I think if the lawmakers just focus on that aspect, they're somehow missing the bigger picture. What are the things that these guys bring up? They've tried to find technological solutions to this that aren't the typical backdoor. Like, for instance, one of the ones I've heard is... And, and in a way, actually, this is something that Apple's iMessage for, while it is end-to-end end, end encrypted, Apple holds the keys to that. And they also set up the sessions. Uh, for example, one security researcher uh, I heard said, well, one thing that Apple could do is they could, because, the, uh, let me divert briefly for a second, the way that iMessage works is if you had a group chat, my understanding is each one of the connections between the end people in the chat are individually encrypted between them. But you, what you could do, for example, is you could add to any point-to-point chat, you could add another person, and that person would be like a wiretap. And that wouldn't be breaking encryption, it would just be kind of breaking the process. So I'm curious, of all the technological solutions that have been thrown around, obviously, I mean, I think all of us can agree at this point, the backdoors are not the way to go, you can't weaken encryption. But do you think that there is a technological solution of any sort that would strike the right balance between having true end-to-end encryption and yet still allowing some form of like a wiretap or, or, or some other way to break into communications? It's a tough question, right? It's something that governments have been grappling with. What I think is good to see is in the past couple of years, the you know, outright calls for banning encryption or end-to-end encryption have kind of subsided. I think you know, many governments, I, I hope, are beginning to better realize that uh, you know, um, those proposals are untenable because they weaken security in such fundamental ways uh, that, you know, um, there'll be massive problems if they were to be carried out, right? Mm-hmm. But the challenge here 
is these proposals are and, and you know are so technology specific, right? So you know what you describe with with iMessage, uh, that's only possible because of the way that iMessage works, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, you can have a different chat service that we maybe uh, design in a more secure and more private way, where that wouldn't be possible, right? So it's extremely difficult to say, hey, you know, this is one solution that you know, uh, we should adopt universally, and this is the correct way to find the right balance. I, I don't think there is a silver bullet like that, right? I think what there needs to be is probably a continual discussion between governments, tech companies, uh, and also civil society groups uh, to, you know, um, kind of iterate and find a consensus, right? And, and this consensus, I think, doesn't really exist yet, right? You know, governments right. tend to relatively extreme positions, but we need to have these conversations so the consensus is ever going to be built, right? And, you know, what I often see is uh, you know, governments with these proposals, they're not consulting tech companies, they're not consulting private companies, they're not yeah. consulting uh, civil society, they're just doing it on their own. And then you wonder why, you know, we can't reach a consensus, right? <sighs> right. All right, one more kind of question around this specifically. Since there is this right now with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, privacy in general and encrypted communications specifically have life or death consequences potentially. And just because you trust your current government doesn't mean that it can't radically change in short order, I think is another lesson to be drawn from what's going on right now. But I'm just curious before we wrap up, are there any other lessons you think we should take from this situation that's going on right now? You know, it's all nice to talk about this from an ivory tower perspective or academically, you know, in the abstract, but when it really happens, I think it really, it brings home for people how real these things are and how important these things are. So are there any other lessons you think we might draw from what's going on right now, specifically from this uh, situation? And maybe do you have any specific advice for communicating securely and privately when the consequences for failure are potentially dire? Yes, this is an area that, of course, we're very actively involved in these days. Um, you know, what we see, of course, uh, in Russia is the enforcement of you know, large-scale mass censorship, uh, yeah. really on a scale that hasn't been seen since the Soviet era, right? So right, in, yeah. In, in fact, uh, because of the prevalence of digital tools, I would say the censorship is even stronger than it was uh, you know, back in the 80s, right? And uh, you know, we do see, in fact, a more than tenfold increase in uh, VPN usage, in total VPN usage uh, you know, in, in Russia, because today a VPN is not just the only way to stay private, but also the only way to learn the truth. And mm. I think you know, um, truth is extremely important uh, because yeah. you know, wars are not just uh, won on the ground, right? They're also right. information wars that need to be won as well. And you know, um, I'm glad that uh, you know, we're able to uh, you know, assist in ensuring the free flow of information uh, you know, in, in places like Russia and also in, in Ukraine as well, right? Yeah, Which is, sure. uh, I think they're suffering terribly. And, you know, the independent press and journalists is also extremely important. And we're very happy to be able to provide, actually at this point, hundreds of accounts, free accounts uh, to mm. journalists uh, reporting from a conflict zone and be mm-hmm. able to uh, you know, support in that way. What I find that is, you know, very interesting uh, and you know, I share here is, what a lot of tech companies are grappling with is, you know, do we stay in Russia? Do we pull out of Russia, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. You know, companies, of course, want to pull out because you want, well, there's two reasons for pulling out, right? I think the reason most tech companies are pulling out is because they cannot collect money anymore. You know, mm-hmm. they cannot uh, take payments from Russians. So you're going to lose money in that market, right? So a lot of them are leaving for that reason. But I think the, the other kind of, you know, reason for companies leaving and the reason that uh, people are, you know, pressuring companies to leave is because, in some ways, you want the ordinary people 
to feel that you know, there's a there's an impact as a consequence to the government's uh, you know actions and maybe to push for change in government policy, right? Um, because you know in a country like Russia, um, which is nuclear you know, power, uh, yeah. change probably change probably has to come from within, right? Mm-hmm. And but at the same time, you know, if we completely disconnect, uh, let's say Russia from the internet and Russians from you know Western internet services you're also in some ways doing the government's work for them, right? Mm-hmm, the government right. would like nothing more uh, mm-hmm. than to have all of its citizens on platforms that it controls, right? So this is, I think, you know, where, the, where again, we get the kind of right balance. So, you know, in, in Proton's case, uh, because we're so essential for ensuring the safety of information, and because we also, you know, want to be able to assist in this situation, we've actually chosen to stay in the market, right? So yeah. we keep providing services, you know, um, for users in Russia. And for some, this is a controversial stance, right? But, but I, I'm happy that, uh, you know, when we announced this, we actually got almost entirely support from the Proton user community. And I'm glad that we're able to, you know, do this. Uh, but this is one of the very interesting things that, you know, um, I found out of this conflict is, is this is also another, another area where striking the right balance is extremely important. Yeah, I agree 100%. There is sort of this knee-jerk cancel culture thing sometimes that I think that we get wrapped up in. It's just so easy to virtue signal by, you know... <laughs> You know, I have nothing to do with Russia, and but I think you made completely the right call, and I'm glad you guys are are staying involved there. Last question, uh, and let's maybe end on a hopeful note. What what is the future look like for Proton? Can you tell us, you know, what new features or services you're working on, uh, and maybe you know what other privacy or security problems would you still like to solve? Well, I think uh, we have plenty of work on our existing products, right? I think just yeah. Proton, Proton VPN. Uh, there are tons of things that we need to improve, and many people are, you know. Um, constantly asking for new features. Mm-hmm. So that will be an ongoing body of work. Uh, you know, we have a calendar and drive product that are um, rolling out uh, this year more widely, and we mm-hmm. plan to get that into general availability for all users. Uh, so I think that'll be very uh, exciting because you know, for the first time, you'll be able to have a complete suite of products that works well together, right? I think you know, email today doesn't exist in isolation. Email usually exists with calendar and also with file storage. So yep. you know, we're glad to be able to build not just a privacy product, also privacy ecosystem. A big focus uh, this year and coming years is actually going to be continuing to make uh, you know, Proton more uh, user-friendly right, and more accessible um, because we don't want just you to use it. We want it to be so easy to use that you know, your parents or even your grandparents can use it because that is what is necessary for our mission to actually succeed. And I think in order to do that, uh, we will also be you know, probably updating the way that you know, we message and even the visuals of the products themselves because you know, we need to make it more approachable, right? I think the biggest challenge in the industry is how do you make privacy approachable? And that is probably what the future of Proton is, uh, because you know, if we don't make privacy more approachable, then you know, we don't actually gain out to everybody. Absolutely. And so, you know, I always encourage people that want to see more privacy to, you know, kind of put their money where their mouth is and support these things. And one of the ways they could do that is by using products like yours and paying for products like yours. Is there anything else that people do you recommend people do if they want to have see more privacy in their world, if they want to have a better tomorrow, what do you recommend people do to, to, to get more involved or to, you know, kind of manifest that future? Well, there is one thing that you can do, and it's probably not something that will be immediately obvious, right? Right now, the reason we don't have privacy is actually because we don't have competition in the tech space, right? Mm. Google and Facebook have no incentive to be more private because the consequences of not being private is nothing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, 
where else are you going to go, right? right. If, if you don't want to go, if you don't, if you don't like Instagram privacy policy, what is your alternative? And the answer is nothing, right? Uh, and, and what I find, uh, you know, very interesting, uh, both in Europe and also in the U.S., is you know, members of Congress in the U.S. are beginning to pay attention, right? You know, there are there is no legislation, uh, and I want to stress it's um, bipartisan legislation, which means it's supported by both the Democrats and the Republicans, which is advancing uh, in both the House and also the Senate, which is taking aim at big tech monopolies. And you know, this legislation, if passed, can really make the internet much more competitive. Uh, mm. And that is actually what will compel tech companies, larger and smaller, to begin to put users' interests first. And this is probably going to you know, lead to the adoption of more private technologies and also allow smaller private companies, uh, you know, like Proton and other companies out there who are trying to fight the good fight, uh, to be able to compete on an even footing with big tech. Uh, so I think it's, it's important to you know, support this legislation. And also let your electoral representatives know that this legislation is important. And because if they hear that, you know, uh, this is something that their constituents want, then this change can actually happen. And I think there's a very, very good chance that we can get this legislation passed uh, because it is bipartisan in nature. And I think that's something that's very hopeful. And I encourage everybody to look into this and pay attention to this uh, because it's happening now. And there is actually a very good chance that something could be done here, despite all the gridlock in the D.C., well, that is a hopeful way to end this. Thank you so much, Andy, for coming on the show and expressing your opinions. Yes, thanks for having me. And I'm looking forward to being back sometime in the future. Absolutely. Big thanks again uh, to Andy for coming on the show and for coming on in general. I mean, CEO of a company like ProtonMail is, you know, it's really nice that he took the time out to come and talk to, you know, let's face it, not, not a huge podcast like like mine. But I, I'm so glad to be able to bring that perspective from somebody at that level who truly obviously cares about privacy and founded his whole company based on those principles and bring that to you guys so you can hear directly from him how he thinks about privacy and how he created his company and tailored his products to meet those goals. And I really think it's important for us to understand that there are compromises to be made. First of all, there is no such thing as 100% secure or 100% private. It's just, it's impossible. As the famous quote goes, you know, three men could keep a secret as long as two of them are dead. And I'm not even sure that that would guarantee it, right? People make mistakes, but I think Proton really has the right balance and it is an extremely secure and private email service. So your messages the content of your messages are secure as long as you're communicating between two different ProtonMail accounts or if you set the message to be encrypted and send it to somebody else who doesn't have a ProtonMail account, you can still have perfectly encrypted communications even if you're talking to somebody on Gmail. So as long as you're doing that, the contents of your conversation are private. Proton has no access to that and couldn't hand it over to somebody if they wanted to. And I really liked the notion that Andy had about private from everybody but us. That is a very common thing today. In fact, Facebook and Google, really, that is their stance. They will tell you that they're very private products, that all of your information is private. Well, it's it's private from everybody but them, right? Because they that's their golden goose. That's where, that's where they make their money is off your information. You don't pay them anything, so they got to make money somewhere. And those are both advertising companies. They make money off of selling you advertisements and making your data available to somebody else. I mean, they'll tell you, you know, left and right that we don't sell your data. Well, no, that's because that's, that's the important stuff. That's their intellectual property. As far as they're concerned, that's their product. 
And so they sell access to that data and they make billions and billions of dollars doing that. Whereas companies like Proton make their money because you pay them. Now, they do have a free tier, but their business model is built around the for pay tiers. That's how they make their money. They don't need to make money off your data. So since this interview aired, and I, we just missed the timing of this, since this has aired, Proton has partnered with Simple Login. We've mentioned that before, and uh, Henry from TechLore mentioned it in our interview. It's one of many ways today to do email aliasing, which is to create kind of dummy email addresses that you can give out, and you can generate these on the fly as many as you want, and hand these out as your email addresses so that nobody has your real email address. And it will forward to whatever email address you want it to forward to, so you'll still get the email message. And if you reply, I believe Simple Login has this solved because most of the other ones now do too. If you reply, it still hides your real email address. It just It's a forwarding service. And the beauty of that system is that if somebody starts abusing your email address, then you can just shut it off. You can just turn that alias off and stop getting junk from them and anybody they may have given that email address to. The other beauty of having aliases is it kind of fractures your personality. Most people probably have one, maybe two email addresses that they use for everything, maybe three, maybe a personal one, a public one, and a, and a work one. You know, that at the most, that's probably what most people have. And so most websites have you sign up using your email address, right? And that's on purpose. They, that not only is that guaranteed to be a unique identifier, so it's handy in that sense. You don't have to pick some weird user ID like you used to in the old days, like really cool guy 35, or probably more like real cool guy 3005, because someone's used that many, many times before. So they had a problem, you know, they, they want unique usernames and someone came up with a bright idea. Well, why don't we have that username be their email address? That's guaranteed to be globally unique. Oh, and now we, we have their email address if we want to send them a bunch of crap or, you know, sell that on to somebody else. So you can now with a service like Simple Login and I guess now ProtonMail, you will be able to create these dummy alias addresses on the fly and give those out, and they'll all come back to your one email address. You only really need to have the one account, uh, but you can hide your true identity, and better yet, they will not be able to correlate that identity across different services. So anyway, Simple Logon is a great service. There are other ways to get that same kind of feature too. DuckDuckGo has something like that. FastMail has something like that. Apple has something like that. I'm really glad to see many people offering similar services, but they have partnered with Simple Login, and so expect to see that in ProtonMail uh, soon, I would think. All right, so now, to the part I'm sure you're waiting for. Again, as part of the promotion I just recently did, I gathered several coupon codes from some services that I truly enjoy and like to promote, not because I get any money or anything from these guys, but because I believe in these products. And uh, one of them was ProtonMail. And we didn't quite get this together in time for that promotion, but that means that I still have these codes to give out. And so I've got 10 codes that will upgrade you to a Proton Plus account. And so again, I... I don't want to make this sound like an infomercial. I don't do infomercials, but I do think you should give this a try. And I do want you to support companies like Proton. They are doing really good work. They've got a great product and we want companies like this to survive. We want the market to support companies that are doing things like Proton is doing. So 
I, I encourage you, regardless of whether you want the code or not, to give them a try. They've got a great free trial version of ProtonMail, uh, and that free tier is perfectly usable, and it will give you an idea of whether or not you're going to like the service, and it kind of locks in your name. You got to you know, you register your uh, ProtonMail user ID. And of course, there's a link in the show notes, but if you just go to protonmail.com, you'll, you'll find it there. So if nothing else, sign up for a free account. Just, just give it a try. But as an added incentive for you to do that, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to give away 10 free upgrades from that account to the Plus account, which is normally, I think, 5 euros per year, but it's quite reasonable. I've been a paying ProtonMail customer for years. So sign up for a free account and send me an email from your new account and send that email to proton at firewallsdontstopdragons.com and send it to me by midnight or let's say 11.59 p.m. because it's always confusing which day midnight belongs to. Uh, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, May 6th. That gives you just a little over two weeks and I will randomly choose 10 people from the, the whoever contacts me at proton at firewallsdontstopdragons.com. And again, send it from your new Proton Mail account. I will pick 10 of you and send out a free code and you'll get a free year of the plus service. All right, that's going to do it for our show today, folks. Uh, I got a, many great interviews already in the can. I've got four other ones just waiting to come out and I've got another one in the book. So I, I've, uh, I've been flush with interviews lately. It's a good problem to have. But coming up soon, we're going to have one from David Reese from Malwarebytes. It's always fun to talk to David Reese. We're going to talk about stalkerware. And uh, not too far in the future, uh, we're going to have an interview with Seth, uh, known from Seth for Privacy. And he's a big cryptocurrency guy. And I've been dying to get somebody to come on the show to explain Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general. We talked about it some years ago, but there's a lot has happened since then. Uh, so it was really good to get an update on that. And uh, so expect that in the not too distant future as well. And several other great interviews. Sometime in May, I'm probably going to do another promotion, probably for new patrons, uh, including challenge coins. And if you have not seen my super cool security enhancing challenge coin yet, uh, you might want to go to d20key.com. That's the letter D, the number 20, and the word key, d20key.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, and check out the coins there. Uh, they are little challenge coins, but they have random numbers on the edges so that, and a little little nub on the bottom side so you can actually spin it like a top and use it to randomly choose numbers between 1 and 20 like a d20 die in Dungeons and Dragons if you're familiar with that but with the website you can use that to generate random passphrases so anyway it's a really cool challenge coin I've given them away in the past it's been a little while so uh, we're going to give some of those away uh, with a new Patreon promotion coming up in probably May I'm going to have some new benefits also for the top tier I've got some great ideas in the works there. So definitely want to check that out when it comes out. And I'll probably be announcing that in just a couple of weeks. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Subscribe if you haven't. Leave a great review if you get a chance. I would much appreciate that. Try out Proton Mail and shoot me an email and maybe you'll get a year for free of the Plus account. Take care, everybody. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.